Life with God is a series we have been in this fall studying the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, one of those books that when you're going through your reading plan in the year, if you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, you might want to try and navigate around because it's a pretty tough book to read. Uh, My hope is that, um, and this next year, if you do that, which is a great discipline, um, that Leviticus will take on new meaning for you. That there will be some context for you as you read a book. And we've described this book as an, an ABC book on holiness. Um, and holiness, and it's de- the book is to help us define holiness. Because uh, to be holy is not to be to sinless or, or pure, so to speak. That, that is a part of it. But holiness means, literally means to be a cut above or in a class by yourself. So that when we read a passage in Revelation, uh, one of the passages like that where you've got these four living creatures around the throne room in heaven uh, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, what they are saying is God is in a class by himself. God is in a class by himself. God is in a class by himself. Whatever attribute of God there is, he is a cut above or he is in a class by himself, whether it's justice, mercy, love, compassion, faithfulness, he is a cut above, he is holy. And in, this, in our study of the book of Leviticus, what we've heard is God saying, uh, I am holy, so you are going to be holy. Meaning, I'm a cut above, so you are going to live your life in such a way that you're in a class by yourself. Not in a religious, mean-spirited, rule-producing, legalistic kind of way, but in a way that mirrors the character of Jesus Christ. That's what being holy is all about. It's living our lives a cut above, and God is showing us the way. He invites us to do life with him. That's been our journey in the book of Leviticus. And we've learned that, that, that this ABC book tells us where to start when it comes to the ABCs of holiness. Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 show us that the ABCs are living a life a cut above or in a class by ourselves when it comes to our relationships. That's the beginning point. We may not start there typically. We may not think that's where you start. But we start with relationships, that's, that's the A, B, that's the A. B is, is in stewarding our time. And C is in how we handle our resources. And we looked at you know, the, the last chapters of Leviticus. That, that's the ABCs. That's how we begin to live this life that's a cut above. And we've looked at tabernacles and how to worship and, and, the, and high priests. And last week, Susan Garlinger wrapped up our series uh, talking about the different festivals or appointed times that are found in the book of Leviticus. And what I want to do today is sort of uh, give an epilogue to the, to the series, an ending to the series um, that, that, that tells the full story of, of these people who began doing life with God. Because if you do know the story, you know that, yes, they came out of Egypt, they saw all the plagues, they saw the miracles and the signs and the wonders in Egypt, and on that Passover night, that multitude came out of Egypt and, uh, and, and they went to the Red Sea. The, the sea parted as Moses you know, held out his staff over the water. And they walked through on dry ground. The Egyptian armed forces are chasing after them. But they go through on dry ground. They get to the other side. And as the, as the enemies are trying to conquer them, those walls come crashing in and they're swallowed up. The enemies are swallowed up there in the Red Sea. And the people are on the opposite bank of the Red Sea. And they are thrilled. They're excited. They're, they're, they're singing songs. And they're dancing on the beach because they have been delivered. 
Yet, if you do know the full story, they get going in the wilderness and they actually get to a point where when they begin doing life with God for so long, they actually get to a point where they will not want to do life with God. Where they will, they will stop believing and trusting God. In fact, if you follow their story, you'll even see that not only did they not trust or believe God, they began to, to not follow his commandments. They desecrated Sabbaths. They began engaging in behavior that was, you know, that was definitely not holy. They worshiped false idols. Ezekiel chapter 20 even gives us the hint that they started this practice in their false uh, God worship of sacrificing their firstborn children which prompts a pretty important question. How do you go from this place where you see God on the move, you see miracles, you see God touching lives, you see the manifest presence of God, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. You watch manna land on the ground every day for breakfast. You see water come out of a rock. You're seeing all kinds of amazing things. You see the, 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 the tabernacle filled with the presence of God. How do you go from seeing all that majesty, all those miracles, and walking that close with God and get to the point where you would say, I don't want to follow him anymore? How do you get there? Or perhaps a more relevant question for us today, how would we go from understanding what Christ has done for us on the cross that he is the atoning sacrifice that pays for our sins, that we can be forgiven, that we can enter into a new life, a kingdom life, where, where we do things Jesus' way. How could we start and be so amazed, sing songs like Amazing Grace, be thrilled with who God is, and then down the road somewhere, actually say, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. I don't trust him. How do you get there? How do you go from being amazed and be excited to this point where you say, I don't want to do life with God ever again? Well, the answer to that question is in this box. In this box is the answer to the question, in this box is the world's most dangerous weapon. This is a very dangerous uh, weapon. It's, uh, it's a lightsaber. Actually, I was looking for a sword, because, but the sword wouldn't fit in the box. And uh, a sword, or a lightsaber, is a pretty dangerous weapon. I don't know what you think of when you think of swords. Maybe pirates, swashbuckling pirates swinging on ropes from boat to boat. You know, sword fights, maybe the cavalry charging with swords extended. Maybe you have some, some ideas of some Japanese samurai swords, or, or maybe, uh, maybe you have some, pretty, uh, some images from World War II, some pretty gruesome images of, of Japanese soldiers executing POWs. A sword is a pretty dangerous weapon. It can stab, it can cut, it can kill. But you and I both know that this is definitely not the world's most dangerous weapon. But this could be, this is Walmart's version of a gun. Uh, a gun is a pretty dangerous weapon. I mean, guns have been used to take lives. I mean, guns have been used to assassinate presidents. Guns are used in war. Or snipers use rifles. They can shoot and take a life of someone on the battlefield from a distance. Guns will strike fear in the life of people on high school campuses and college campuses. I mean, think of Thurston High. Think of Columbine. Think of Virginia Tech. 
Guns are a dangerous weapon, but they're not the most dangerous weapon in the world. This little bag uh, represents, uh, well, remember back after 9-11, there were these letters that were sent that were loaded with anthrax? Shortly after 9-11, they were mailed to two senators, uh, to some different TV networks, media outlets, and anthrax was put in these envelopes, and when people opened them, uh, there were five people who were killed, 17 people who were injured, um, and a chemical weapon is, is a pretty dangerous weapon. This is just salt. I tasted it, haven't died yet, but this, this is a, a symbol of what could be very dangerous. I, I stood in a city in northern Iraq uh, about, about four years ago, a city which in the late 1980s, was a chemical weapon was used on them in northern Iraq, and 5,000 5, people died in one morning. An entire generation in that city wiped out. I stood there in the cemetery where 5,000 bodies were buried. A chemical, weapon, a chemical weapon, a nerve agent, a poison can be a very dangerous weapon. But it's not the world's most dangerous weapon. Let me show you the world's most dangerous weapon. It's a tongue. Uh, this is a real cow tongue. And this, not the cow tongue, but uh, the tongue is the world's most dangerous weapon. The tongue can speak words and they can just flip right, they can go right to the, sorry honey, splattered you a little tongue juice. Um, <laughs> That words have a way of getting past all our defenses and striking at the very heart of who we are and they can harm us. Some of you in this room had words spoken to you when you were young and they still, you can still play back the track. You know what was said to you and it still hurts. The tongue is a dangerous weapon. When it wags, run for cover. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me, just didn't know how to do, they, they weren't alive. Because words are very potent. The tongue is the world's most dangerous weapon. Well, just listen to some of the ways that scripture talks about this danger of the tongue. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Pretty strong words. Proverbs chapter 12 says, reckless words pierce like a sword. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. In James again it says, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Poisonous. The tongue, a gentle tongue, can break a bone. A sly tongue brings angry looks. A lying tongue hates those that it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. And then this verse, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue can either speak life or it can kill. The tongue is the most dangerous weapon in the world. It can decimate, it can cut, it can stab, it can harm, it can handicap, it can destroy. 
And it is the tongue that got the children of Israel into trouble when they came out of Egypt. It all began here as they employed the world's most dangerous weapon. And it all began with murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. Now, I'm going to put this down because no one wants to have lunch now. Um, and I will wipe my hands off with the rag my wife told me to use. And I have hand sanitizer I'll use after the service in case you want to shake my hand. Uh, <laughs> murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. You know, if you ask the, the, the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, do you think that down the road that you are going to want to just avoid doing life with God? They would have said no. But that's exactly where they ended up, and it all began with murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. Let me define those very quickly for us. Murmuring is this private conversation we have in our heads where we utter these, 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 uh, these, these conversations of discontent or dissatisfaction. We're dissatisfied, we're discontent, and we sort of have this conversation with ourselves. You know, things like, you know, I don't deserve this. I could have done that better. Why'd he do that? That wasn't smart. I mean, we just start, we just start murmuring, and it's, just, it's a private conversation. Grumbling, it just adds a little more texture to the murmuring. It, and now we start growling a little bit. Now we start gathering people around us that we can grumble with. And, and then complaining, you know, grumbling is this, it's the murmuring that's grown into these, these now, we're, now we're irritated. Complaining, the, the end of it is a public now declaration of what we don't like, we're dissatisfied, and laced in the foundation of a complaint is this, this, this uh, resentment and anger. We, we, we are now officially lodging a complaint, it started out with murmuring. It grew to this growling, grumbling, and now we're complaining. We don't like how you did that. We don't think you should have done it that way. I don't like where you've taken us, and, and, and I'm just letting you know. Murmuring, grumbling, and complaining led the people from a place where they were on the beach dancing and celebrating their deliverance, cheering. You know, give me a G. They were all excited with God. But the most dangerous weapon in the world started working. And it led them to a place where they would say, I don't believe you, God. I don't trust you, God. And I don't want to do life with you. And it all began with grumbling, murmuring, complaining. I was working on this message this week. It's a short week. Um, Tuesday morning, I had about you know about four hours carved out where I could uh, I could work on the message and um, and you know remember the windstorm that blew through here about a week ago caused quite a bit of damage and well it messed with our fire alarms here in the building and so uh, my office um, right outside the door is this panel where the fire alarm is and when I came to to, to work um, I sat at my desk and I just I kept hearing this beep 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 coming from right outside my door. I check it, and sure enough, it's the fire alarm. And uh, I'm, so I go back, and I start working on my message, and I'm like, really? I'm gonna have, like, water torture all morning? This drop of water in my forehead? Beep, beep, beep. And, you know, our, our, our crew here works real hard, a maintenance crew, and they're uh, trying to get it fixed, and they do get it fixed. And shortly after they get it fixed, 
Uh, there's a family uh, in our church that had a pretty significant moment in their life, and they're having a celebration that day, and they're pulling cars up, and um, I can see a car pull up right outside my window. It's parked right there on the sidewalk, and um, as the family gets out, they, they go to arm their, their car alarm because it's dangerous to park in front of the church. And, uh, and as they do, um, instead of arming the car alarm, the car alarm starts to go off. You know, now, now it's not beep, beep. Now it's like bah, 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 bah. And they're standing there, and they're trying their hardest to shut the car alarm off. They can't get the car alarm shut off. And, uh, and, and I see them working hard, and, and finally they get to the point, like, you know, well, and then so they just walk in the church, and there's that car right outside my window. Bah, bah, bah. I'm like, really? Right now? I, I, I got to write a message. I'm murmuring, grumbling, and complaining, and this is going to happen? <laughs> so I get in my car. I'm going to run some errands I know that, that need to have and to get, to get done before Thanksgiving. So I'm driving around town. I'm driving down this road. There's a couple lanes, and there's this person in the car in front of me, and I mean, they just decide to change lanes. They don't look. You can see they didn't look in the, in the mirror, and they pull right right over to me and almost hit me. I, I hit my brakes, and I begin to have a conversation in my car with the person in front of me like they can hear me. Like, I, I can't believe, really, that's how you drive? I'm surprised there's not a dent in your car. I'm, I'm having a full-blown conversation in, in my car. You know, I want to give hand signals. Not that one. I just do this when I drive. It's like, yeah. And then I came back and finished my sermon on murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. <laughs> Look, here's the deal. We have countless opportunities to murmur, grumble, and complain. They're, they're everywhere. You could be writing a sermon, and, and it happens. And you know you're weak. And you know what came your way. Yet what we do is we often minimize that, you know, this grumbling and murmuring complaint, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. People went from, I can't wait to, to learn who this God is. I want to follow him to this place where I don't want to follow this God. I don't, want to, I don't even trust. I don't even believe him. I worship other gods. In fact, I'll kill my own firstborn kill, children as worship. It's a big deal. It's the most dangerous weapon in the world, our tongues. Let me just give you a little bit of a collection, a playlist, so to speak, of the, of the complaints, the murmurings, the grumblings in the wilderness from the, from the book of Numbers. I'll throw them up here on the screen, uh, and you can just kind of follow along and see if these, any, any of these sound familiar. Numbers 11, verse 1. The people are complaining about hardships. They're in the desert. It's very hot. It's not an easy place to travel. They've been delivered but their complaint basically is, it shouldn't be this difficult. Why is this so hard? Why is this so difficult? I wasn't expecting this. I had different expectations. And then three verses later, the people are complaining about their food. You know, they're getting manna every day, um, but you know, they, don't, they, don't, they aren't getting the things they had. They had variety in Egypt. They had leeks and onions and vegetables, which doesn't sound better to me, but when you start throwing fish and other meat, I mean, they, they had buffet tables in Egypt. In, in the wilderness, it was just manna all the time. And, and they're complaining about their food, and what they're basically saying is life was better before God. You know, when I wasn't even following God, life was just easier. And now I'm following God, the creator of the world, the one who's in control, the one who knows all things, has all power, and life is harder. 
And they complained life was better before they started following God. Another complaint, Numbers, uh, Numbers 12. Miriam, who is Moses' sister, and Aaron, who is his brother, are murmuring against Moses. Here's why they're murmuring against Moses. Moses has taken a Cushite wife, a foreign wife. They weren't supposed to have foreign wives you know, in, in that context. They weren't supposed to have foreign, uh, foreign spouses. So Miriam and Aaron start, start murmuring against Moses. And by the way, they're right. You know, they're, they're saying, what makes him so special? How come he gets to do that? How come we, we can't do that? How come he gets to do that? And by the way, a very important lesson from Numbers chapter 12 is this. You can be 100% right and still be wrong. And that's what's happening in Numbers chapter 12. Miriam gets leprosy, gets out of the camp, gets healed. What makes him so special? Numbers 14, the people grumble against God. This is where they're at the border of the promised land. They sent the 12 spies in. They've gone in there for 40 days. They come out, 10 spies uh, say, you know, they give a, basically a negative report. Yeah, the land is great. Uh, the, it's, it's beautiful land flowing, milk and honey. You got grapes the size of softballs. That's all great, but cities are fortified. We're like, you know, the, the people there, the warriors there are, are giants. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. You got Joshua and Caleb who are saying, you know, no, no, we, with God, we can do this. We, we can take the land. But the people believe the negative report and basically land in a place where they say, that'll never work. Whose idea was this anyways? This'll never work. That's a ridiculous idea. What were you thinking? And they grumble. And then uh, again, in, in Numbers chapter 14, the people then complain against their leaders. After they believe the negative report and don't trust that God can deliver them into the promised land, they basically turn on Moses and Aaron and say, I don't like where you've led me. I trusted you, I was following your lead, you said you knew where you were taking us, you said, you said God would take care of us, and here we are, and I don't like where I am. This is not what I imagined. I don't like where you've led me. That's Numbers chapter 14, verse 10. And then we continue, 16. Korah and two other guys grumble against Aaron. Aaron's the high priest, Korah is saying, we're all holy, I should get a crack at this job. I should, be, I should be the high priest. This is where, by the way, where Aaron and others lay their staff out and, and God is going to show who his high priest is and he's gonna cause one of these, these, these staffs to bud and that's where Aaron's rod, his staff, buds and ends up going into the Ark of the Covenant. God confirms his choice of, of Aaron and, and Korah and his whole family ends up being swallowed up in the earth. But basically what Korah is saying is I should be in charge. We don't like where you've led us. We think we can do it better than you. I should be in charge. Korah is punished, which leads to us to our next complaint. Community grumbles against Moses and Aaron after Korah loses his life and his whole family loses their life as they're swallowed up in judgment. And basically now what they're saying is, Moses, Aaron, this is your fault. We're here in this place and it's all your fault. And then we get to Numbers uh, chapter 20. The people are now quarreling with Moses and Aaron, saying, you've made my life miserable. We trusted you. You've made my life miserable. And then finally, 
Numbers 21, the people get impatient. They're walking away now from the promised land and they're accusing Moses and saying, this is taking too long. This is taking too long. This isn't what I expected. Now, you throw that whole playlist up there on the screen, here's what it sounds like. It shouldn't be this difficult. Life was better before God. What makes that person so special? That'll never work. I don't like where you've led me. I should be in charge. It's your fault this has happened. You've made my life miserable, and this is taking too long. Any of it sound familiar? I mean, I, I can hear my voice in some of those. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but I, I can. Here's an important question. Are you a complainer? Are you a murmurer? A grumbler? Are you thinking that you can do life with God and murmur, grumble, and complain? Is that who you are? How do you know? How do you know if you are? Remember the comedian Jeff Foxworthy? who had this sort of uh, comedic line where he would help people self-identify if they were a redneck. You know, he'd say things like, if you've if you gone to church, you've never made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. <laughs> or if your lifelong dream is to be an owner of a fireworks stand, you might be a redneck. He just would go on and on and on, and, you know, people would kind of, <laughs> yeah, it'd be funny, and they go, oh, that's me, that's my dream. Well, let me just read some scenarios that aren't nearly as funny, but might help you self-identify if you're a murmurer, a grumbler, or a complainer. See, if you have the, the uh, ability and gifting to identify and articulate what is wrong versus what is right, you just might be a complainer. If you discuss problems with people who cannot help you solve them, it just might be a grumbler. If you gather social support when you feel like you've been wrong, sort of like a, a sheriff rounding up his posse, you, you just might be a grumbler. If posting on Facebook is your way of venting your dissatisfaction with the decisions of others, you, you just might be a complainer. And there might be a little drama in your life. When people come to you with their complaints and you immediately respond by saying, you think that was bad? There was this one time when, and then you share your grievance. If you've done that, you just might be a complainer. If your questions typically start with, why do they always, versus, how can we? You're probably a complainer. If you mail accusatory letters or write discouraging cards without signing them, you just might have a problem. If you set up situations that are destined to fail. Like, if my sister doesn't call me in the next five minutes, then I'm never speaking to her again. 
Well, you just might be a whiner, grumbler, complainer. If you look for the worst possible outcomes, and you're probably like a Debbie Downer, or the male version of that, and a complainer. See, the reality is, is that whatever one of those might be true or not true, we minimize our grumbling. We say things like, I'm just being honest. I mean, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Someone's got to put it out there. I mean, everyone knows it. Everyone's thinking it. I'm just saying it. I mean, you need to know. We minimize our grumbling and complaining. We rationalize it. You know, it is true when you read the Psalms, the psalmists, they, they say some pretty, you know, stark, blunt things. God, where are you? Are you sleeping? Can't you see what's happening in my life, God? God, can't you see the wicked are prospering? God, can't you see we're starving here? But you know the difference between the, the writer of the Psalms and a whiner, complainer, grumbler, murmurer? The difference is, in the Psalms, when people are in these situations that are incredibly painful, they're not afraid to share them with God, and God's not afraid to hear them. What he's looking for is what happens in the Psalms is that people always land in a place of trust. God, where are you? I expected you to deliver me here. You didn't. Life hurts. But I believe you're sovereign, and I trust you. When we are complainers, we don't land in a place of trust. We land in a place that's typically suspicion, cynicism, and skepticism. And that's employing the greatest dangerous weapon in the world. That's exactly how the people that were delivered from Egypt came out of the Red Sea having God delivered them and seeing God manifest his presence, watching all kinds of miracles. And, and that's how, as they began to murmur, grumble, and complain, actually got to a point in their lives where they said, God, I don't want to do life with you. It all began with murmuring. You ever, you ever seen um, a movie where like something bad is about, like a bomb is about ready to go off and there's like this, this clock that's counting down seconds and someone's got their wire clippers and there's all these different colored wires and they're trying to figure out which one to cut and it's like five seconds and four seconds and three seconds and they're, and they're, got their, they're trying to figure out which one to cut and finally they get in there and they, they, in the last second they snip the wire and the bomb doesn't go off and everyone takes a sigh of relief and there's sweat going down their forehead and the weapon has been disarmed. How do you disarm this nasty thing? From all the wagon and those situations we get in where we just want to, oh man, I got, I got something to say about that. Yeah, you're right. How do we cut the wire and disarm the most dangerous weapon in the world? Let me just give you three examples of how you can do that after I wash my hands. <laughs> Start with gratitude. 
we've just celebrated Thanksgiving. Gratitude has a way of refocusing your eyes from what's wrong to what's right. Here's a soul training exercise for you. Um, For a week, or if you're brave enough, for a month, keep track of all the blessings or all the things or people that you are grateful for. Just keep track, make a list of all the things that are the, the little and large blessings of life. Of course, at the beginning, you know, you got Jesus and you got friends and relatives, we get all those names on there, but think past that. Start, start making a list of things that you're grateful for. You know, like a pumpkin spice latte, coffee ice cream. You know, God didn't have to give us flavors. In the wilderness, they had one flavor. It's called manna. We, flavors. Or a, or a sunny day. No clouds in the sky. Or standing at the ocean and just watching a storm come in. Or walking through your sidewalk in your neighborhood and, and seeing leaves somersault their way down, down the street in the breeze. Or a job, food in the pantry, good friends, a warm bed. Just start making a list. And here's what you'll discover. You'll discover that over time, your eyes will shift from noticing what is wrong to what's right. Gratitude will change what's happening in here because it refocuses your vision. That's one way to clip a wire and disarm the weapon. Here's another way. Um, Overlook an offense. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says this. A man's or a woman's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. I've come to the conclusion that in in our society today, we are a very offended people. We don't like it when people do things that we don't agree with. We get offended when people don't think like we do. We get offended when people don't vote like we do. We get offended when, when someone does something that they may not have meant to do. We are an easily offended people. And what we learn from the scriptures is that it's wise, you're patient, and it is to your glory to overlook an offense. You know, maybe it wasn't a personal attack when they shifted lanes and didn't look. You know, maybe it isn't quite how they meant it. Overlooking an offense is a way of clipping a wire. And the last one is humility. Humility is a way to clip the wire. I think that the natural tendency for us, if there's a gravitational pull in our lives, it's to this place where we become pretty impressed with who we are. You may make a lot of money. You may have a good position. You may be able to dunk a basketball. You may have raised a family and your kids are doing well. You may be known for being wise. You may have been valedictorian. You may have have accomplished a lot of wonderful things. People may come to you and seek counsel and advice. 
And what happens is in any of those scenarios or many others, we become very impressed with ourselves. Well, this is how I think you should do it. And we need people who love us but who aren't necessarily impressed by us to speak truth into our lives. One of, the God, one of God's greatest gifts to me in that area is my wife, Trina. And I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know what? She can speak truth into my life and, and be honest and say, you know, you just might be wrong on that one. Imagine it, I mean, if it could happen. We need people. If it's not, it doesn't have to be a spouse. I mean, if you are married, it should be. But what about a good friend? Someone you're doing life with who could say, you know, you might just might have the wrong read on that. And you might need some humility. Humility is a way to cut the wire. Gratitude, overlooking an offense, Humility are all ways to disarm the world's most dangerous weapon. Look, let's go back to our beginning question. How do a people who come out of Egypt who have seen God work in powerful and miraculous ways get to a point where they don't want to do life with God anymore? In fact, they want to go the opposite direction. They get there just little steps at a time. They start by murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. And it didn't just impact them personally. It infected the community. And that's exactly, that's exactly what could happen to us. But imagine a people who are doing life with God, who are grateful, thankful, not easily offended, and humble. What you'll find is a beautiful family what you'll find is a community that you can't wait to be a part of.